to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 28 of the COO Roundtable. Last month, we recorded live at the Mercer Capital Practice Management Insights Conference, and that was a lot of fun. And we have another special episode today. We're not talking with two RIA COOs this month. We're talking with two extremely experienced consultants within Schwab's business consulting division. And we're going to take a bird's eye view of the COO role and how that role can help manage the complexities for RIA owners as they try to balance both managing client relationships and at the same time the need to manage the operations of the business. I think another way of saying that, which is discussed a lot in our industry, is working in the business versus working on the business. So I'm very excited to be joined by Nicolee Turner and Tony Parkin. Uh, I've known Tony for many years, dating back to my days at Focus Financial, and I met Nicolee uh, while preparing for this for this episode. She's fantastic. So we know this is going to be a great discussion. Nicolee and Tony, thank you so much for being here. Thank Thanks, you. Matt. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, Tony, I, I, as we were preparing for this, I, I have to tell the story. I'm sorry, but it's just too funny. <laughs> so I have to tell the story that when when PFI advisors, when we moved our offices to Hermosa Beach a few years ago, Uh-oh. it was. Uh, I have to tell the story, Tony. <laughs> it's too funny. I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> so we had just moved in. We were on Pacific Coast Highway. Tony was our very first visitor in the in the new office, and. I don't even know if we had been there a week yet. And when Tony arrived, I asked him, hey, did you, were you able to find parking downstairs? Because it was a little confusing. It was the parking garage was on the side street. It was underneath the building. And we hadn't even mapped it out yet, like how to give people instructions on where to park. So Tony says, oh, no, I didn't even park downstairs. There was parking right in front of your building. It was fantastic. And I said, oh, great. This is going to be so great for other visitors. We'll just tell them to park right in front. Little did we know, <laughs> little did we know that at 3.01 every single day, Day, the city of Hermosa Beach came and towed every street on the <laughs> on the block to make room for e- the evening commuter traffic. They needed to clean the lane. So our meeting was at 2 p.m. I think Tony walked to his car at like 3.06 and his rental car was long gone. <laughs> and the funniest part of the story for me is Tony thought I was some kind of big shot that couldn't be bothered. He didn't come back upstairs. <laughs> he didn't come up and say, hey, can you help me find my car? Instead, he went and tracked his car down. He had to go find the tow yard. And Tony, I think you you couldn't even get it out, I think, because you didn't own the car, right? I think you were carless for several days while you were in town. Yeah. So for anybody listening to this that stumbles into the same sort of trouble that I did in the future and has your rental car towed, I'll save you a lot of time and anguish. Don't go try to, to extract it from the impound yard. They're not going to give you your rental car. Just get on the phone with your rental car agency. First, get in an Uber and go wherever you need to go next. And then later, get on the phone with your rental car agency and negotiate for your the best exit you possibly can. So yeah, um, learn something new about life in LA that day, Matt. Thanks, thanks for uh, letting me relive it here this afternoon. Well, we're full service here, but I wanted to, the transition I was going to make from that story into what we're talking about today is how resourceful you were. <laughs> and that's one of the core traits of a good COO, right? We talk about it all the time. The COO is thrown these curveballs and is told, just go figure it out. We, it's a blank canvas. We don't know how to do it. So that's my attempt at a transition to get us back on track here. So Tony, I'm going to go. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I'm going to go to you, Tony, first. Why don't you start us off by just telling us a little bit about Schwab's consulting services and how you engage with RIAs? Sure. Thanks, Matt. And thanks again for inviting us in this afternoon. I'm really excited for the conversation. 
So at Schwab, we've been really focused for the last 15 plus years on bringing an intense amount of support around consulting and practice management to the registered investment advisor community, obviously specifically the firms that, that work on our platform. And we exist kind of for the same reason that this podcast does, Matt, which is that you know historically advisors have been amazing practitioners and great in their craft of financial planning and advice and money management, but they haven't necessarily come into the business trained as business operators. And so we saw that need um, many years ago to bring some more help and support to help grow some of them into that and give them a little more help and guidance than, than they were getting at the time to run their businesses more efficiently more profitably, et cetera. And so more broadly, I share responsibility for our business consulting and education group within the Schwab Advisor Services business. I share that with my colleague, Lisa Salvi. Lisa and her team are responsible for building the infrastructure of the consulting programs and engagements that our teams deliver in the field. Also responsible for kind of a a very broad platform that all of our clients can engage with, starting from our benchmarking and compensation studies, our virtual practice management platform, series of you know, thought leadership, white papers, our compliance reviews, et cetera. So we have a lot of you know, self-service resources for, for all advisors to interact with us. And then my responsibility specifically, Matt, and another way that we interact with advisors is we have um, teams of consultants that are in the field every day working with existing registered investment advisors and with advisors looking to transition to independence as well. And I think Nicoli will go a little bit deeper on some of this in just a minute, but we have a, a long history in the first team that we established more than 15 years ago is our technology and operations consulting team who focus a lot on tech infrastructure process and cybersecurity with advisors. And then we added the business management consulting component about a dozen years ago. And then over the last few years, we took those two disciplines and we decided that we wanted to stand up teams with those two disciplines that just focused on working with advisors looking to transition to independence firms who didn't yet have a relationship with Schwab or who still might be, might be operating in the more captive environment. And that's gone really well. And, and we paired that business management consulting focus, the technology consulting focus with a project management focus around kind of all the moving parts around setting up a new business and then transitioning the actual clients of the business over to this new structure as well. So we've got a, a big combination of work we do over Zoom today, but hand to hand across the table from advisors when we're back in a more normal environment um, and a lot of self-service um, capabilities as well. That's great. Yep. A lot of stuff that you guys tackle is exactly what we talk about here. So I know this is going to be a fantastic discussion. Nicolie, why don't you tell us, add what you'd like about how Schwab offers firms that are cussing with you, how you offer these services? Sure. Thank you, Matt, so much. Yeah. As Tony mentioned, I get to lead a great team of business consultants, each with their own super impressive set of skills and backgrounds. Our team is geographically dispersed. We are joined by my counterpart, Adam Mosley, who leads the team of technology and operation consultants that Tony mentioned. The really great thing is that we are united, I think much in the same way that you are, in our passion for helping firms make significant and really lasting changes. And we, we endeavor to do that by working side by side with them. We want to know and work on whatever their most important initiatives are 
Sometimes those are challenges, but other times those are opportunities. And the team works on topics like you would expect growth, marketing, profitability, segmentation, client experience, those kinds of things. And then we also dig into successions and transition and all those things that go into the human capital bucket. We're sort of organized around five guiding principles for advisory firm success. And that framework or those Five Guiding Principles helps us make sense for these firms on how they can tackle the different initiatives that they might be thinking about. So just really quickly, those five guiding principles are effective planning and execution, so really strategic planning and how that's such a great leading indicator of success for advisory firms. Our second one is value is defined through the client's eyes, not what we think it is, but it's actually what the clients say it is. Number three is operational excellence, which creates a greater capacity for clients. And that's an area that Adam Mosley and his team goes really deep in. The fourth one is your reputation is your brand. And then fifth, people are your most important asset. So those guiding principles helps, I think, provide a nice framework. Many of your listeners have probably worked with someone on one of our consulting teams before, but our way that we work with firms is really to first understand where the need is and then break up the consulting engagement, whatever the solutions are determined to be into smaller, more manageable pieces and steps. And that's really worked well over the years. Those five guiding principles, that's fantastic. A lot of what we talk about here is what should the COO be focused on? And I think the COO touches on all five of those. So those are fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're going to they're gonna look at those five guiding principles through different lenses, depending on, you know, the size and what sort of things are happening for that firm in that, in that moment. Exactly. Yep. One of the things I do in prep for this is I always stalk people on LinkedIn. <laughs> and so, Nicoly, I see on LinkedIn, you're a probation officer for three years. That is incredible. <laughs> you've been training, <laughs> you've been in training and consulting for over 15 years, but I saw going way back on your LinkedIn, you were a probation officer. So give us a little bit of your background, if you don't mind. Oh, that's funny. Yep. You dug that up. So yep. <laughs> uh, my I think the, yes, I did. I spent actually quite a bit of time at first as a probation officer, but then sort of using that, that knowledge and information to create training and help folks. But the thread really that you'll find in my career is really this fascination around how people work and how people pursue their own excellence. So I always say that my story to Schwab is that, or that I'm at Schwab because of Schwab's benchmarking study. And you may think that that's kind of odd, but at the time I was working at a boutique consulting firm here in Phoenix. I was consulting with clients in many different industries, although that firm had a large client base in financial services. So I was really pretty familiar with what was happening in financial services. So I was consulting on you know, a lot of the typical topics that you would be thinking of. But uh, our specialty in that firm, there's intellectual property around human capital. I was also training consultants around the world. It was a really, it was a fun job, but I was kind of ready for a change and became interested in the consulting organization at Schwab. And so I was interviewing and anyone who's ever interviewed at Schwab knows that it can be somewhat of a lengthy process. So I was probably on interview four or five and preparing for the next interview. And I was sent this 50 page document and I thought, what the heck is this? So I started digging in and digging through it all. And it was really in that moment that everything, I had sort of this moment of clarity and everything really changed for me in the way that I I thought about the consulting and I knew immediately how valuable and how I would be able to leverage that robust 
data to help a firm in a way that I couldn't do without it. I was sort of flying blind without it. So I just could see immediately how it would speed up and add clarity to the delivery, to solutions that could be grounded in reality and best practices and that were supported by the numbers, by the data. It was such a clear competitive advantage, really next level consulting in my opinion. So I knew that I had to join the Schwab team. And I think that was that was about eight years ago. So that is how I ended up at Schwab. That's awesome. And Tony, you've been at Schwab for almost two decades. You had a break in between, but when you and I met, you were in charge of, I think you guys call them strategic accounts. I call them national accounts, but you were in charge of the focused financial relationship. And that's how you and I got to know each right. other. But uh, can you walk us through your background and, and how you're now in the business consulting division? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Matt. And first, maybe I, I knew you were going to dig up that nugget specifically <laughs> of her history as a probation <laughs> officer. And I've told many people over the last few years that the time that she spent in that role and the personalities that she got to work with prepared her well for being part of my team. So <laughs> it's, 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 it's worked out well. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go back in the Wayback Machine for a second just to give you and the listeners a little bit more insight into you know, who I am and why I'm in seat that I'm in today. I, I consider myself kind of a, a lifer in financial services. And I luckily, just literally by being lucky, I found the RAA model when I was in college. I went to school at San Diego State, and they were one of the first programs within their their business school, their finance department to have an emphasis in financial services where if you did it right, and I didn't do it right, but if you did it right, when you got done with that program, you had the educational requirements for the CFP out of the way. And some of the professors that, that taught some of the courses, specifically the financial planning courses, were CFPs and, and were practicing advisors. And so I, I got introduced to kind of what this business was all about then. And as I tried to find out more about the industry, I got an internship actually with Mary Lynch while I was in school as well. And it was a really weird thing to happen to be taking these financial planning courses and being taught by CFPs who were, you know, fee-based financial planners. And then a few days a week, go in and work in a Merrill Lynch office where financial planning was treated as a product at that time, a, a leather bound product at that. And back in the early mid nineties, I mean, you know, stock picking was still kind of, you know, how uh, much of the industry was operating. So I got introduced to the industry through a couple of different lenses. And then, you know, a year or so after graduating, found myself in San Francisco and landing an entry-level job at Schwab. And I liked what Schwab brought to the marketplace, understanding a little bit about how they were trying to help investors across the board and just wanted to get into the industry and you know get licensed and kind of uh, give myself a little bit of a foundation to pop my head up and look around. And a year or so after coming to the company, I realized that Schwab actually had a business unit, what's now called Schwab Advisor Services, focused on working with registered investment advisors. And once I figured that out, I, I did everything I could to find myself an opportunity in, in that business. So year and change after coming to Schwab, which was in 1999, I found a role in the sales and relationship management group in San Francisco, representing the Schwab custody business and was on that team in various you know, relationship management roles, working with advisors in and around the Bay Area in Northern California. It was a really fun time to be in the space and meet a lot of amazing people, some that are kind of the luminaries of the industry at this point and get to know how the industry works. And I really kind of fell in love with what the industry is about and the people that are in it. And from that time on, 
Matt, I was just, yeah, I've been trying to find roles that would help me make a positive impact, not only on Schwab and the custody business at Schwab, but hopefully have an impact on kind of the marketplace at large. And, you know, fast forward a number of years, you mentioned I stepped away from Schwab for a few years and some businesses that were focused on the RA marketplace as well. When I came back, I did go into what we called then our strategic business development team. Now we call that our enterprise relationship management team. And I, I ran that team for uh, six or seven years. Fun to have a really front row seat to the most rapidly changing part of our marketplace at that time. You mentioned working with focused financial partners and the high towers and the dynasties of, of the world. And that was that was a lot of fun. And I think our team had positive influence on some of those firms finding the success that, that they did. And, and the partnerships are really strong now. And then a few years ago, got an opportunity to move into the, the business consulting and education group. We were kind of investing a little bit more in the size and scale of the teams that we had out in the field and wanted to make a connection between the consultants and our, our salespeople and our relationship managers to find more opportunities and maximize the investment of the consultant that we brought into our business. Again, kind of for the greater good of the RA marketplace and helping more firms find even greater success than they'd found on their own. So it's a little bit about me and where I am now. That's awesome. Very good. So I want to talk about this fantastic white paper that, that Schwab produced. Nicholas sent it to me. It's called Building an Effective Organizational Structure, Enabling Growth Through a Stronger Organization. And the paper discusses a lot of the topics that we cover on this podcast. So I just want to read the opening paragraph because I think it will resonate with a lot of our listeners. So the paper reads... Every advisory firm faces decisions about how to plan for sustainable growth and position itself for success while also tackling business-related challenges, such as managing more complex processes, overseeing an increasing number of employees. Often, firm leaders have to strike a difficult balance between spending the time needed to run their business, focusing on how to create scalable operations, and managing the firm's talent, all while building relationships with clients and pursuing additional growth. So all of that comes down to the crux of what we discuss on pretty much every episode, which is the the need for professional management at RIAs. So I wanted to ask you both to just talk a little bit about the benefits of professional management and some of the findings in this paper. So Tony, I'll go to you first. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And thanks for the plug yes. of the paper, something <laughs> that we're, we're proud of. So one of the foundational things we talked about in, in the paper, we really start with this a view of how different firms are organized and how they operate. And uh, we had to, but we kind of forced ourselves to distill it down into four primary models that advisors operate in, kind of solo shop, solopreneur, if you will, those that operate in silos, ensemble firms, and enterprise firms. And you know, I, I really want to say first that there will always be solo firms, solopreneurs. There will always be firms that operate as silos in this industry. And that's fantastic. I mean, really, those firms are what created this industry and have been the lifeblood of the industry for so, so long. And there are many that will enter in those models, enter into the space in those models, or continue to operate in those models. And that's great. But if you want to operate as an ensemble or become an enterprise firm, the, the mindset really needs to change to one that's open to bringing in professional management and really you know, thinking differently 
about how they're managing their firm day to day. One of the things, Matt, that we track in our benchmarking study each year, where we ask advisors to tell us the top strategic initiatives that they're going to be focused on in their business in, in the coming year. And you could probably guess how this breaks down. The top two initiatives every year that we ask this question are about growth. It's acquire uh, new clients through client referrals and acquire new clients through business referrals. And for us, sometimes it feels like there's a little bit too much of an emphasis on growth. I think founding principles of firms is those folks that are you know still very much operating as an advisor and out representing the firm, selling into the marketplace. That it's really what they're overwhelmingly focused on. And it's tough for them to focus on some of those other initiatives that fall lower down the scale, like improving productivity with new technology, enhancing strategic planning, and recruiting staff to expand the, the firm skill set and capacity or to focus on satisfaction of existing clients. So I like to, to joke that it reminds me of this kind of broad-based joke that a bunch of us heard in our, maybe our management 101 classes the first time around is somebody's talking to a business owner. Business owner says, we lose a dollar on every sale we make, but we're going to make it up on volume. And that may be a little, a little harsh, but that's, that's the mindset that we hear a lot. And so the question that we like to ask is, who do you have in the firm that's going to focus on the rest of those priorities, right? Priorities three through five mm-hmm. or three through six. And, and all too often, especially as a firm is younger in their, in, in their tenure and kind of going through the steeper part of the, um, the, the growth trajectory, there isn't anybody to focus on, on those strategic initiatives. And if you don't have a person or multiple people dedicated to those strategic initiatives, you're just going to keep hitting your head on kind of the, the ceilings that exist on the growth curve. That's exactly right. So, uh, Nick Lee, can you share your thoughts on the need for RAs to bring in professionals to run the business so that the advisors can just focus on the client referrals and the business referrals and where the next client's coming from, et cetera? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's some really great examples in that paper that you mentioned. There's just such great examples that firms, you know, like we highlight um, Strat Wealth, which is an East Coast firm that grappled with this very topic. And we see it over and over again, but it's a very specific issue for your firm, right? Because that's who you're, that's what you live and breathe every day. But Strat Wealth saw the kinds of things that you talk about all the time about grappling with this desire for growth, but seeing that growth flatline as the complexity of the business of just running the day-to-day business increases. And so for them, they decided to bring in a CEO. I mean, we talk a lot about the different forms that this professional management comes out in, whether it's CEO, COO, or other flavors of that. But in this case, when they were able to bring in somebody who is dedicated to that role and dedicated to running the business, they were able to grow their AUM by almost a half a billion dollars in three years. So it just shows that having that kind of focus and dedication, what it can do for your business. I mean, and it's not always necessarily bringing someone in from the outside. I think another great example in that paper is Lake Street Advisors, where they just restructured and got really clear that they needed to understand who was going to be focusing on these other things like technology, like staff development, like operations. And they ended up creating within their firm a seven-person leadership team. So, and it was still led by one of the the partners, but it was, but they carved it out in a very dedicated way. So, I think you know, it's just, it's it's definitely a struggle for firms. And once they recognize where they want to go and what their 
their objectives are, then they need to look at who is doing that day-to-day management of the business. And, and Matt, maybe a nuance you know, to your question too. I know the podcast title is you know, the COO Roundtable, and this is a lot about you know, that role that, that we're speaking of, but there's steps in between, obviously. And as, as firms look to grow and they have more work to, to do, right? more clients to serve, more reports to get out the door, they have a choice to make. They can hire people into the firm to do the work, right? To just give them excess capacity, or they can seek out to bring people in, even younger people or people with maybe not experience in this space, not just to get the work done, but to be the type of people who are going to look at how the work is being done today, how it can be done differently, potentially moving forward to find you know, additional scale or, or bring additional capabilities into this business. You know, I, I know that's come up with some of, some of your guests in the past where you know, they started early in, in the firm is not as the COO, but they brought that sort of that same sort of mindset um, to whatever role that they were in. And so you know, that's something that all firms can do even early on as they're, they're bringing in additional staff is pay really close attention to the type of person that you're, that you're bringing into the firm. Somebody that, that has a little background in project management or you know, is going to bring that professional management mindset in, even if they're not managing people, can get you a long way in the direction that we're talking about here today. Yeah, we needed a, a title, so we we've latched on to COO. But you're 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 absolutely right. It's just it's about professional management. It's it's COO, CCO, CEO, or it's just administrative assistant. It's director of operations. It's anybody that just isn't focused solely on their primary function is not to bring in clients. And I get pushed back sometimes. How can I afford that? I can't. And I. I can't have somebody that's not going to be bringing in assets come into the firm. And I say, you're putting the value at the wrong spot. You're trying to put the, the quote cost at that person. You got to put the value to you. What's your time worth? Let's free you up so that you can focus on what you do best. And, and Nicola, you talked about the growth that you've seen, right? When, when they bring in people that aren't just dedicated to bringing in the clients, but servicing the clients and figuring out how to service them profitably and efficiently. It's transformative for sure. To that point, let me, the next question, again, we're going to use COO, but it can be anything, but I'm asked all the time at what AUM level, they think there's a magical level. What AUM level should I bring in a COO or should I bring in that professional management? And I always say, well, there's no magical number. It really just comes down to the complexity of the business or the complexity of the client relationships and what the growth goals of the firm are. I'm sure I'm sure Schwab has asked this question all the time. So Nick, I'll go to you first. How, how do you advise yeah. RAs that are saying, do I need this professional management at my firm? Yes. And we get asked that same question too, you know, at, at what number? And then you have, you sort of hit on it, the answer, which is a good consultant answer, which is it depends, right? It does <laughs> depend on what are those other aspects of your business? What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? But anecdotally, I would say that we see this conversation and interest in sort of that professional management will ramp up around 500 million, definitely as we're getting into 750 and a billion dollars. And many of those firms are implementing some kind of, and I like to say dedicated management. So there's someone who is either their entire role or the good majority of their role is spent on that management. And so we see it around that size. I can tell you specifically for the COO 
role. And as we mentioned before, it's hard to say because people title it so many, so many different things or think about it in different ways. But we see at, you know, at 500 to a billion dollars, we know that about 30% of firms that size will report that they actually have a COO. And to me, that's it's pretty, it's kind of shockingly low, mm-hmm. but I think it's because there's so many other flavors. And then when we get into a billion dollars, we're definitely seeing the numbers spike up closer to around 45% of firms saying that they have that, that chief operating officer role. But again, lots of different flavors in between there. Yep. And Tony, what do you think? Is there a is there a bell that goes off <laughs> letting the firm know, oh, time for professional management? <laughs> I, I don't know if there's a, a bell that goes off, Matt, but the way that I like to think about it, it kind of back to the, the models for firms that we talked about before, solo, silo, you know, ensemble enterprise. If somebody wants to you know, operate as a solo practice forever, um, even a lifestyle practice, that's fantastic. And that means that they don't ever need to make that decision. But if they're operating in that realm today, but they have made even just the mental decision or they've started to tell people that they want to build a, an enduring firm right? One that's going to last forever with the same name. They're not looking to build something to then join forces with with somebody else. That's the point in time that they need to start making a plan for how they're going to weave dedicated professional management into the mix in, in their firm. So to me, maybe that's the light bulb that goes off is the moment that somebody commits themselves to that long term and enduring component of their business. You had a guest on in the last couple months, though, that I jotted a note down around Matt. You had Michael Kosman join from Experience, somebody I've known for a long time. And he mentioned he joined Experience back in 2000 when they had, I think, somewhere around 400, 450 million in assets under management. And um, I don't know that he joined with the CEO title necessarily at that point in time, but that firm, which already had an amazing reputation, in the industry, you know, made that commitment to professional management at that level. And, um, you know, I would say for firms that want to, you know, follow along that sort of trajectory of success, um, if you allow yourself to get much bigger than that without investing in, in that sort of a person or that sort of a role, you're, you're probably not going to live up to those growth goals. Yep. Matt, if I can just add in here that I think um, one of the ways you know if you need this professional management is to ask your employees and to sort of ask yourself because you will see the indications of it with decisions that are bottlenecked. You'll see it with inefficiency. You'll see it in lack of adoption in your technology. Like you will see it existing, I should say, rearing its ugly head in the issues that come up that pop up in, in your firm. Yep. I think that's right. If we're going to go through this discussion, so we've decided we need one. <laughs> but then t- two years ago, this week, actually, two years ago this week, we wrote an article that was titled Why Professional Management Fails at RIAs. And it really struck a chord with, with a lot of people because I think a lot of firms do struggle. They, they make that decision and they try to bring in the first one and and they're just not quite mentally ready there. And there, there's some things that, that they don't do great to set that person up to, for success. So Tony, in your experience consulting with RIAs, where do you see the challenges for firms when they're bringing in professional management for the first time? Yeah, you know, Matt, I'm going to mostly double down on much of what you said <laughs> in that article, frankly. Um, I, I think what you brought through there were the things that resonated with me the most. There, There's a an element of control, um, of giving up 
control that, you know, kind of the, the founding principles that are hiring in professional management um, need to get themselves comfortable with. That's probably first and foremost. They, they have to create space for these new people that they've hired in or maybe existing employees that they've, they've elevated the role. You know, they, they need to create the space for those people to, to operate um, and not be looking over their shoulder on a day-to-day basis or creating an environment where uh, employees are still going to come directly to them with their, their thoughts or, or concerns that are in the business. Um, you mentioned, too, that, that people can't expect, expect miracles. Um, change takes time, especially if you're stepping into an organization um, that might not have had a lot of um, this uh, formal infrastructure in, in the past. And so patience, I think, is, is uh, really important as well. Um, and then, um, you know, if the firm has done a good job um, with establishing, you know, a vision, um, a purpose, some stated future goals, if, um, hope, you know, if they haven't already, or if they hadn't in the past for a firm to go through a strategic planning exercise so that they have those things clearly outlined and they have all of their employees um, and, and preferably their clients understanding you know, truly what they're about, um, that, that gives um, that new professional manager something to, um, to, to fall back on, right? It's not just them coming in and trying to make change um, for, for the sake of change or doing things that they want to do. Um, the decisions that they're making, the way that they're operating uh, is in support of, of the purpose and in support of the, the long-term vision and, and the long-term goals that um, that the, the the founding leadership team has already established or established maybe in in conjunction with these with these new um, professional managers. So I think that's critically important. And and then um, for for those people, if, if those founding principles are are still acting as advisors, still maybe the rainmakers on behalf of the um, of, of the business, and still working with with clients actively, um, go back to doing that. And, 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 and again, you know, leave that space for, for the new managers to operate. Yeah. And, and Nickley, where do you see firms struggling when they, when they bring folks in to handle the business side of things? They, they, again, they want to, they have good intentions. They say, I want to focus on, on clients and prospects, bring somebody in, but where do you see people struggle? Definitely with, you know, first and foremost, understanding the, the, cultural fit and just making sure that there's an alignment there. Part of that process that Tony was describing involves understanding the values of the firm. And so that really defines the culture and how you can understand whether or not this person would be a good cultural fit. So that's, of course, I think just like sort of table stakes has to happen. But then one of the things that I think firms can do to help these folks succeed is to get really clear. And this involves some thoughtfulness and some intentionality but to really get clear on some governance structures, we talk about you know, the difference and the similarities between ownership, leadership, and decision-making. And it sounds simple, and, but for a lot of firms, that was one thing. That was, you know, that, that was all wrapped up into you know, partner or founder. But as these firms have grown and they've become so much more sophisticated, they have 
uh, created these other levels where there's some ownership folks who aren't taking on a leadership role, or there's some leadership folks who, are, who don't have ownership. And then they really have to decide who and where are the decisions being made and who has that decision-making authority. So if they can get clear on that and they can outline and define what that is for their firm, because it looks a little bit different, you know, quite frankly, for, for all the different firms, but they can get clear on that. I think that is one of the pieces to success. The other, the other thing that I think about, and we talk a lot about this in our executive leadership program, where we're working with those leaders of firms, and we talk about the different roles that leaders are going to play in a firm. And we talk about the technician or the advisor role, the manager role, and the entrepreneur role. And this all comes from, from E-Myth, if you've read that book. But um, getting uh, clarity on how much time is, say, uh, a partner going to uh, spend in that manager role? How much time do they want to spend on it? And once they realize that they're going to shift those, the percentage of time that they spend in those different roles, um, then they're giving space to those managers, those professional managers, to, to have the majority of their role be in that right category, whether it's, you know, manager or whatever that might be. So those are a couple of the ways that I think about it and, and really hopefully our solutions to helping professional managers be su successful in these RAs. Yeah. I mentioned, I talk about E-Myth all the time. I love that book. It's, and it's so, yeah. it's so yeah. perfect. Yeah. So we discussed your white paper about organizational structure, um, specifically to the COO, or maybe it's the CEO coming into an organization and trying to add some structure to the RIA. What should they look to first? How, how can they determine what structure is best for the firm that they've, that they've just joined? Um, Nicolee, what, what do you think? I'll go to you first on this one. Sure. So I, I think we like to back up and get to, to really to strategy. So doing some of that work through the strategic planning, but also understanding, I think it's critically important that these firms understand who it is that they're trying to serve, who are they trying to grow with. So we call that their, you know, their ideal client persona, who are they trying to achieve? So that's one of the ways that I think that they can start this process is understanding that so that they can then design the other pieces and parts of their business around that. Uh, one of our most favorite benchmarks marking data points uh, around the power of that ideal client persona and getting really clear on who you're trying to serve is that firms that have a documented ideal client persona add 28% more clients annually, which represents 45% more assets. That's an incredible figure. And that's because these firms have documented who they're trying to serve and what value they add. So I think that's one of the first elements that you can do. And then you're going to start, you know, looking at a situation analysis. You're going to start looking at some of the other pieces and parts and, and structure of your firm. But I think that that is critically important. So I'm going to quote that <laughs> all the time. So let so make sure I got it right because <laughs> it's super important. So yeah. if you've if you've defined your ideal client, you're saying firms that have defined their ideal client have grown clients by 28% more than those that have not, and they've grown assets by 45% more. Is that do I say it right? Yeah. So that's from our benchmarking study. So the firms that participate in the benchmarking study, we've asked them and we've we've asked them. A couple times now to recreate this information, but this data point, but firms that have documented it, yep, that's correct. They added 28% more clients than the firms that didn't have a documented ideal client. And they, and that those 28% uh, more clients represented 45% more assets. 
So it is really incredible, isn't it? I, I love it. I mean, we've written about it, but I talk about it in engagements all the time. And one of the first things, is, you know, hey, what tech stack should I use? And I said, well, let's talk about who you're trying to serve first. <laughs> And, you know, let's talk, right. let's talk about who your ideal client is. And, and I get pushback. They say, hey, hey, that's that's a marketing question. I'll, we have a marketing consultant that'll talk about our ideal client and who we want in that persona and everything. And no, 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 I need to know this too. <laughs> it's very important. It's important for me. It's important for the COO. It's important for the CEO, et cetera. So I'm going to use those numbers all the time. That's fantastic. Thank you. Tony, what are your yeah. thoughts on this? I'm just going to pull on that same thread, Matt. And yeah. you'll maybe need to just have a whole nother episode with Nikoli to go deeper on our thoughts around ideal client persona and, yeah. and what a client value proposition could look like. We we go a step or two beyond, I think, where, where most people do with the, the concept of an ideal client. But just like what you said, um, for many of our other consulting engagements, whether they're marketing related, strategic planning related, or some uh, work we're doing more recently around journey mapping, where we're working with firms to reimagine processes, we won't get into the meat of that work with them unless they have that ideal client persona very clearly identified. Because what are you building to, right? If you don't know who you're trying to serve. So we think that that's incredibly important. And one thing I want to come back to, um, you know, we we talked a lot about titles um, in this conversation so far. And I think it's fascinating kind of the the reluctance to use specific titles that, that we have as an industry or the stigma that we have around specific titles, um, maybe the title of COO in particular. I was sharing this story with Nickley the other day. It hit me um, thinking about this conversation. Um, you, you mentioned, Matt, I uh, had a few years away from Schwab about a decade ago. And as I, right before I came back to Schwab, I was talking to a number of different firms about some a variety of roles, mostly sales relationship management. And I got the question a lot from people, like the classic interview question, right? Where do you want to be in 10 years? Um, and and I would say at the time, I said, I could see myself you know, being a COO you know, in the industry, whether it's for a sizable RIA or, or a firm that um, sells into the space, you know, create services products for the space, but it would be a very growth focused COO role in my mind. And people would look at me like I had three heads. Um, when I said it that way. And and I had one person actually say, do you, does that mean you think you'd be involved in the sales process as, <laughs> as a COO? Um, and and I, I said, yeah, of course. Like, why wouldn't I? But I didn't have the term, like the terminology to use. I couldn't name it uh, at that point in time. But it's all about having people in your business that understand the, the strength of understanding who you, you seek to serve and building everything in your business, every part of your business around that ideal client and making sure you're wasting no time doing anything other than trying to perfect um, how, how you serve that person. So 10 years later, I finally have a little clarity on, on why those conversations uh, went sideways. Right. <laughs> so last question here, um, uh, again, around the concept of professional management, COO, CEO, whatever it may be, um, where they struggle sometimes is their communication style with employees. So we, we spend a lot of time talking about the client, but but let's talk about how they communicate with the employees, making sure everyone is rowing in the same direction, understands the high level vision and the mission of the firm. Many times professional managers, they assume employees are in their heads, right? <laughs> and they're absorbing a lot of this through osmosis. And that doesn't happen even when we are in the office together, but especially over this past year where employees have been dispersed, I think a lot of professional managers have had to work on their communication style. So Tony, I'll go to you first. What advice can you give managers on how best to communicate their vision to the employees of the organization? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to a little bit we talked about before, Matt, the, the importance of having a formal dated purpose statement and vision statement. We do this, folks, a lot of time on this at Schwab. Schwab's purpose as a company is to champion every client's goals with passion and integrity. Our vision is to be the most trusted leader in investment services. And um, I do my best to try to bring that specific language into interactions with my team and other teams on a regular basis. I think to have something that's that explicit and you have to kind of say it and say it again and, yeah. and say it again because you can't expect that people just get it. And, and the bigger the firm, the more important that is. It's critical that everybody understands really clearly you know, who you are as a firm. They might have their own separate language or words that they would use slightly different from your specific you know, purpose statement or vision statement, but but it needs to be really close. And the more that your firm is hiring, bringing that into the the hiring practices, I, I, I think is is really critical component for for success. Everybody needs to know what they're buying into or who they're buying, and and that's a a really good way to level set. I love it. That's exactly right, Nickley. What communication advice can you share with our listeners? Yeah, I'll, I'll um, maybe add a little bit of a number to what Tony said there in terms of how you have to say it and say it again. Again, pulling from our executive leadership program, we talk about this concept of 10 to 1. So for every message that you're trying to get across to someone, you have to find a way to say it at least 10 times. Um, and if you think about it, I mean, it makes sense, right? We, we kind of know this intuitively, but yet we fall back on this idea that everyone knows what I know um, or thinks about it as much as I'm thinking about it. So I, I work you know, all the time with, with CEOs that say, well, we rolled out our strategic plan you know, last December. So yes, everyone knows what our vision is for the future, but that was the one time that they really explicitly said it. So to, to Tony's part, um, point there in terms of saying it again, I encourage people to think about, you know, what are the 10 ways that you can communicate, um, whether it's your vision or something else that you're trying to get across. Um, I think that repetition is really important. I also think just, um, you know, helping uh, firms think about this in terms of a change management uh, exercise. So, when we talk about change management or we're trying to get a firm to make that significant change that I mentioned, we are helping them go through specific steps like making sure that you've pulled together a guiding coalition or a team of people who really in, in great detail understand what it is you're trying to accomplish, that you've thought about the steps along the way, that you're rewarding progress. I mean, there are specific steps that you can take to to really help change become a part of your culture and become part of, of your firm. So I think uh, following those kinds of steps and thinking about it from a change management kind of perspective um, helps the communication and it helps, um, you know, uh, helps all employees really understand what they need to do around um, making that communication intentional because, you know, it's not for a lack of, people wanting. They want these messages to get out there. I think they just have assumptions around um, how easily people are able to absorb that into their to their everyday lives. So um, being more intentional around it and kind of taking that change management approach, I think is helpful. 
Yeah, I think I think we uh, talking about you know the ideal client. Everybody thinks, well, that's marketing. From a marketing perspective, I think everybody understands to, to, to for a prospect to hear my message, I'm going to have to say it ten times. But I, we do. We just assume, well, they're they're hanging around me. <laughs> my employees are hanging around me. They'll get yeah. it. I don't have to say it ten times, but it's just as important. It's just human nature needs to hear it ten times, regardless of the message, regardless mm-hmm. of who's saying it. So that's that's really important. And Matt, if I can just add too, I think that it's about um, it's a hearing it is one thing, but then there's also that that next step of internalizing it. So, you know, I worked with a, a firm that was trying to help get their vision, their long term vision um, embedded within the firm. So we took them through an exercise after sort of talking about the vision and sharing the vision where we just broke into to smaller groups and I had them draw out on that big, you know, the big post-it note, sticky papers. I had them draw in pictures what that vision meant to them. And that was an opportunity for people to take the words and sort of try to demonstrate through a picture what that meant to them, what it um, sounded like and looked like for them. And then they shared that back to the, to the larger groups so that they could get real clarity and alignment around that. And that. I mean, that's great communication when you've, you've talked about it, you've internalized it, you've aligned on it. That's good communication. Yeah. Well, this, this has been really insightful. I'm so glad we were able to highlight Schwab's consulting services. Not, you're not only the largest custodian in the RIA space, but as the oldest custodian in the space, Schwab has seen that full evolution that we talk about all the time in this industry of going from, from practices to businesses. You, you've, you've witnessed it, it, it all. So thank you, Nicola and Tony, for being here uh, today and for sharing your insights with all of us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for continuing this conversation. I love it. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that is a wrap on episode 28, everyone. Thank you for listening. And we will talk to everybody soon.